welcome to The Yarn, where we bring you some of the best reporting from the graduate journalism courses here at the University of Melbourne. I'm Fia Walsh. Today on the program, how a cult's leader in the Solomon Islands developed a following. We're going to talk to the reporter behind this story, Master of Journalism student Julie May Fenwick, in just a moment. But first, let's have a listen. Cults have long fascinated audiences worldwide. A charismatic leader, a willing following, and often manipulation. In the early 2000s, in the small Pacific country of the Solomon Islands, my uncle was the leader of one. I remember them walking up the hills in the mountains, lots of followers, and we'd be standing there watching them, going up the hill and light a big bonfire and kill chickens or frogs or anything. They kill them and sacrifice them and eat and drink the blood. But I used to run away because I was so scared. I thought he might come back and start do it to human beings. That's my mum, my uncle's sister. She was only in her early 20s when the cult started. The political distress at the time around land rights saw a loss of respect for a corrupt government. An upheaval that saw New Zealand send military assistance in an operation titled Ramsey. In the turmoil, my uncle's cult flourished. My mom... Julie, welcome to The Yarn. Hi, thanks for having me. Your story is set in the Solomon Islands. Can you tell us some more about this context? What's life like there and, and what was happening in the early 2000s? Honi, so Honiara is the capital of the Solomon Islands and it's located on the island of uh, Guadalcanal. Um, and for years, people from the neighbouring island of Malaita were migrating there because, um, because the capital was there and there was greater opportunities available um, for jobs and you just economic growth. Um, so in 1998, a group of Gual men congregated to form the Istanbul Freedom Movement because um, they were unhappy with the mass migration of the Malaitans to the main island. Um, and they forcibly evicted or removed Malaitans from many of the rural towns that were there. Um, and they did this by force, um, starting off with just, you know, these really rudimentary weapons, just like bush knives, etc. And then after a while, they started raiding, you know, police um, artillery units and taking more sophisticated weapons like guns and like World War II equipment and things like that. Within the course of the next few hours, the government caucus will be asked to be convened to discuss the current security situation and how it impacts on the governance of Solomon Islands. A letter was handed to the Prime Minister this morning asking him to resign within 48 hours. The regular police has virtually lost control of the security situation in Honiara. By violence, as has been the case on Coral our nation will face a social catastrophe unheard of in our history as a nation. Criminals now rule the streets, causing unprecedented fear in the minds of our urban residents and visitors to our country. The likelihood of peace returning to Solomon Islands is now becoming a more remote than ever before. So then I think by the end of 1999, around 35,000 people had been displaced from Malaita. Um, and, you know, there was a lot of political disrest in that time. Um, and between then and 2000, the national government obviously tried to establish 
you know, peace by coming up with all these treaties and, um, but nothing was working. So I, around 2000, the Malayan people created the Malayan Eagle Force, which was made up of um, Malayan men to kind of counteract the Istanbul freedom movement. Um, and that basically started the ethnic conflict between the Malaitans and the Guadalcanals. Um, and so, or in the 2000s, the government at the time decided to approach peace negotiations, negotiations in a very monetary way. And that basically resulted in 2001 in the economy collapsing. Um, and so in that time, there was a general state of lawlessness. Women were getting raped. Villages were getting pillaged. Um, the police force was incredibly corrupt. The government was corrupt. Um, there weren't really any rules. Um, and so in 2003, it finally ended, I guess, when New Zealand and Australia sent over the regional assistance mission um, for the Solomon Islands, or Ramsey, and put a bunch of people in jail and took away a lot of weapons. And then I guess there was peace. Okay, so we've got this kind of complicated context of a lot of civil unrest, a corrupt government, crashed economy and foreign military presence. And out of this comes your uncle. He's handsome and obviously a really smart guy. What, what do we know about cult leaders and, and how does your uncle fit the bill? Well, I guess, you know, thinking about other cults, um that have happened historically. They're always very charismatic. Usually, I would say usually male, someone who presents a new kind of philosophy that others follow because this person seems very educated. Um, so my uncle fit all of those things. Um, he was incredibly intelligent, incredibly charismatic, very handsome. He was studying to be a pastor of theology in New Zealand. I think a lot of people respected him because of that. Um, and because of that civil disrest, I think a lot of young men just saw him as, you know, someone worthy of following. And as much as the cult was around his charismatic personality, it was also around the penis. One of my aunties, who was in the islands at the time, told me that though my uncle believed in God, his new religion revolved around one thing. A man's penis. No, the penis of a man. So he take this group of young boys, he tell them, you know, so and so and so, and he, in some theory, like he said, we know God is the creator from the beginning, but with human beings now, this is the creator. Carving penises from wood, my uncle recruited young, restless men with a religion that intertwined old biblical theory. What do you make of this? Does it speak to gender relations in the Solomon Islands, or was it there some sort of sexual element to the cult? No, so the, Stol the Solomon Islands was based around a kind of Christian missionary, you know, practices. Everyone's very conservative when it comes to sex. So the phallic element of the cult is very surprising. And I was talking to um, a Solomon Island anthropologist when I was doing this assignment, um, Deborah McDougall, and she was saying that... Maybe my uncle, when he went over to New Zealand to study theology, brought back some of those phallic worshipping elements from Māori culture. Um, yeah, so I... Yeah, phallic worshipping is definitely not 
um, something Solomon Islanders openly talk about, or like they don't talk about sex, they don't talk about. It might be different now, but no, they're a very conservative religious culture. I want to talk a bit about re- the religious culture there, because there's kind of an eerie ending to your piece where we find out that your uncle is still a religious leader, uh, a pastor in a different part of the country. And where is Henry now? He became a pastor. He became another leader for the church, but in another island in Western province. After having reported this story, what's your take on religion and particularly Christianity in the Solomon Islands? The Solomon Islands is highly religious, obviously because of its historical, you know, background with missionaries come, yeah, colonial past. Um, But there were so many different denominations of Christianity that were spreading across the island um, and so many different churches my family specifically. So they were part of the South Sea Evangelical Church. Um, And if anyone knows anything about evangelicism, um, it kind of revolves around, you know, having visions or, you know, it's very um, decentralized. So it's very, you know, pastor based and they can open a church and like maybe not have their own interpretation of the religion, but, you know, have visions and lead people in that kind of way. And I think, I think religion's definitely a beautiful thing, but in this context, I guess my uncle took some of those teachings and created something that was unhealthy for a lot of people. On The Citizen and Radio Fodder, you're listening to The Yarn. I'm Fia Walsh and my guest is Julie May Fenwick. Julie, we'll turn now to your reporting process for this story. You made the audio piece in collaboration with All The Best Radio. Can you tell us about working with them? What was your brief? But the brief this year for All The Best and Science Gallery was the topic of Swarm. So we had to create a five-minute podcast surrounding our interpretation of Swarm. Um, And so when when I heard Swarm, I initially thought of another idea because I didn't think I was ready to present, you know, this story yet. Um, But this obviously perfectly fit the brief because it was about hundreds of people swarming to this religion in a time of, you know, great political upheaval. Um, So, yeah, working with All the Best was really good. I worked with a producer called Danny Stewart um, and she really guided me in how to tell the story and how to tell it interestingly. You say you were a bit worried you weren't ready to tell it. It's obviously a very personal story. How did you approach um, talking to your family about this? I was, I've been thinking about writing the story for years, probably since I was 17, 18, and I've, but I've always wanted to do it in the right way. Um, so it was a very morally kind of conflicting time trying to figure out whether I should do it for Swarm or not, whether I should do it for an assignment or not. After a year, backlash from the community and a visit from the police forced him to stop. How did it finish? Because all the churches were against it. And even his dad doesn't like it, you know. People start to create like being enemy with him because how come you're doing this and you're born from a Christian church? How come you're doing this, you know? 
and even the relatives and the, the family, you know, they're all scared of him. But yeah, it, it is a really sensitive topic within my family and I think a lot of people feel like a deep sense of embarrassment about it. Um, and I asked my dad and I asked my mom and I said, is this like ethically okay? Like, is this okay if I do this? And both of them agreed. My auntie who was on the podcast wanted to be anonymous. So, you know, that kind of shows that deep sense of embarrassment that my family feels. But I still, I still feel a bit morally conflicted about it, to be honest, because it's not really my story to tell and I feel like I'm so removed from my family in the Solomon Islands sometimes that I don't think I did it the justice it deserves and I think I want to redo it again in the future but you know actually spend like a year or two over in the Solomon Islands and like get to know the culture properly and get to know the historical and religious context and really show it in the light it deserves because it comes across as very heavy and very um, negative, but I think if people understood the cultural context, it wouldn't. Well, it's definitely such an engaging story, and I would love to hear more of it. I, I guess one beautiful thing about audio is that we can hear the voices of your mum and of your auntie, so we, we do get that sense of authenticity there too. Finally, Julie, do you have social media? Where can our audience find you? Um, you can go on my Instagram, but I don't really post anything too related to hard news journalism. Um, but that's Julie Fenfen, or you can visit my website, juliefenwick.com. Julie, thanks so much for joining me on The Yarn. Thank you. You can listen to Julie May Fenwick's story, Swarm, How a Cult Leader Charmed a Following, on the All the Best podcast and at thecitizen.org.au. A big thanks to our producer and citizen cadet, Jordan Beasley. Thanks also to radio fodder producer Mark Yin. That's it for this week. I'm Fia Walsh. See you next week here on The Yarn.